going to uh, with open with a video from um, an organization called the Bible Project. Any Bible Project fans in the in the room? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it sets up very well. So enjoy. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now, Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger, and he's running towards the city. He's running, and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says... How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now, in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. So when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right. But for Jesus, this is what had to happen. 
Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. The, uh, the Bible Project is a fantastic uh, uh, organization. They're out of uh, Portland, uh, Oregon, I believe. Uh, they're part of a church called Amago Day, uh, which is just a, a beautiful church that, that is really committed to artistic expression and um, how the gospel can be presented in, uh, in just really uh, uh, artistic ways. Um, engaging ways. Um, and if you're interested, especially for families in uh, learning more about there, check out their, it's bibleproject.org. There's tons of videos. I think they just about have a video for every book of the Bible. That Every time you like, go into a Bible study, um, you, you can actually watch this and it'll kind of give you a, uh, a, a preview of, of the, uh, the entirety of the book. So uh, it's a great thing. And I thought that it set up our time this morning. This morning we'll be <coughs> continuing our series uh, the Community of the Gospelized. Um, it's a series on the church. Uh, week one, we learned about how the church is a confessing community. We're a church that confesses that Jesus is Lord, or we're built upon the truth, that, uh, on the confession that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of the living God. Um, and then week two, last week, Jason talked about how this is all Jesus' church, and this is a cross-shaped church. This morning, we're going to talk about the, what's called the Great Commission. Uh, it's not actually referred to as the Great Commission in Scripture, um, but it is a, the, basically the last words of, um, uh, in Matthew's Gospel, uh, the last words of Jesus. So at this time, I'd ask the congregation to please stand for the reading of the Word of God. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him... They worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, all flesh is grass. The beauty of that grass is like the flower of a field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this, the word of our God, endures forever. Amen? 
Amen. Have a seat. (coughs) So years ago, when New Hope went through a particularly difficult season, the elders of the day decided that it would be a good idea to create what would be known as an internal touchstone. It was a document, it is a document, that would help ground the church in what we believe or help ground the leadership of the church in what we believe God is calling us to be and to do. The document isn't for public consumption. It contains nothing that would surprise anyone, though, who has been, not anybody who's been hanging around New Hope for any length of time. Most importantly, it is a reminder that New Hope is Jesus' church. It's a reminder that we're not defined by anything other than our devotion to worship of Jesus Christ. Two of the most important questions that any church can ask is, what is the church and who is it for? Our internal touchstone reminds those of us in leadership that the answer to those questions um, is the conviction that the church is Jesus' bride and it is for Jesus. Any choice we make, from theological doctrine to the color of the carpet, is done under the conviction that we are a Jesus community, dedicated to the proclamation of his gospel, the good news that the kingdom is at hand. Though I believe that my favorite line in the entire document is one that asks, what do we do? And the document answers that, what we do is be the church. As a young man in ministry, um, that was one of the things that was difficult for me to grasp because I wanted to do big things for God, right? As I developed a call to ministry, I started to pay attention to what others were doing around the country, at, at churches around the country, and there was this thrill that, that just stirred me when I saw pastors like Andy Stanley and Rob Bell and what they were doing in their church environments. I also developed this interest in theology, and and when I listened and I read people like N.T. Wright, I I felt like, wow, God's really doing something in my soul, and I began to strongly um, feel of the conviction that that the local church is the hope of the world, a conviction that I still hold firmly today, but still, the church is only the hope of the world because it is Jesus' ecclesia. It's Jesus' gathering of people who are committed to worship, discipleship, fellowship, and service, sacrificial service, the kind of service that comes from sacrificial love. Anything that is done simply because it is a fancy new fad or even because it drives people in the uh, church doors and droves is, is nothing if it is done outside of the conviction that we are a Jesus community. I think it's wonderful that so many in our world has a, have a heart for social justice, for standing up for the vulnerable and for the poor, for the oppressed. But justice, along with worship, discipleship, and evangelism, is still nothing if it does not flow from the conviction that Jesus is Lord. So we come to our text this morning, the, the final verses of Matthew's Gospel where Jesus gives his disciples what the church has referred to as the Great Commission. Now, nowhere in Scripture are those words referred to as the Great Commission. That was something that someone thought of later. It's a thrilling way to end Matthew's gospel account. A few weeks ago, ago, we looked at Jesus' words to the disciples back in chapter 16. 
he asks them what the word on the street is regarding him. They tell him some of the rumors, and then he looks at them, and he asks, well, who do you say that I am? It's Peter that tells him, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I can't begin to imagine how those words must have stirred Peter's heart. Some have argued that the word ecclesia, which means gathering, literally means gathering or assembly, has almost a military connotation, as in a mustering of forces. In ancient Athens, the ecclesia was a principal assembly of Athens. It was responsible for declaring war and developing military strategy. So when Jesus tells them that he's going to start something in Peter that the very gates of hell won't prevail against, Peter might be thinking, all right, all right, finally. Let's start gathering our legions, and we're going to finally show these Romans who, who the people of God are, right? Evidently, as Jesus is going to use me as a great general, Peter thinks, and you just wait until I show them who's boss. But Jesus isn't finished. He looks again at his disciples and says, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Jerusalem. And they might be thinking, all right, yeah, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to get arrested. Ooh, that's, that's cool. What are you going to do when you get arrested? Oh, and then I'm going to be killed. What? But it's okay, because I'm going to be raised on the third day. I'll be raised from the dead. Uh, Jesus, that sounds like a pretty good plan, but uh, we uh, might want to think about just a couple of the details. Peter, the, the great general of God's army, after receiving his first assignment, which was to bear witness to the Messiah, the son of the living God, dying at the hands of his oppressors, says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then Jesus, perhaps moments after he tells Peter that he will be the rock of the church, looks again at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. If you want to follow me, and be my church, you'll have to take up your cross as well. For it is not through military might that we're going to taste victory, but rather through sacrificial love. And then he does it. Jesus does it. Matthew records Jesus going to Jerusalem only to be arrested. He is crucified alongside criminals. And the disciples watch as this great individual, the one that they had hoped would be the Messiah, has his life extinguished on a Roman cross, a death that was excruciatingly painful and outrageously humiliating. It's extremely important for us to know that Jesus was dead. Because you see, back in those days, people didn't come back to life after being dead. But Jesus did. He's raised from the dead on the third day, And then he calls his disciples to gather on a mountain because, let's face it, God does some incredible things on a mountain. And as they gather, gather, the excitement is just anticipating. Oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. Matthew tells us that when they saw him, they worshipped him. But then Matthew adds another fascinating detail, by the way. He says that they came and they worshipped him, but some doubted. By the way... If you were writing this and you wanted to make sure that the reader was clear about the resurrection and the stability of the followers of the resurrected Christ, 
you might leave out some of that some of them were the detail that some of them were doubting that this actually happened. I think if you're under the assumption that the disciples made all of this up in order to start some power-hungry church machine, you'd have to wonder why they put some of these details into the narrative. But, assuming that it's all true, how encouraging is it that at the moment of the Great Commission, some are still at a place of doubt? See, maybe that's a word for some of us this morning. Maybe you're here gathered at this place called New Hope Community Church, and you're not quite sure you could really belong here because you too have doubts. You too aren't quite sure that this resurrected Christ that is before you is actually real. I mean, we're gathered here today to worship a crucified first century Palestinian Jew who we actually believe is the king of the universe. It's understandable that that may be a hard pill to swallow. Still, we're told the disciples came to the mountain in a posture of worship. Here's a crucial principle. All mission flows out of worship. John Piper tells us that worship is the fuel and goal of missions. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and countless millions of redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship? Worship abides forever. Even when missions takes the form of feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, we do so from a posture of worship. One of the ways we worship the God who has shown us immeasurable grace is to pour our lives out to others in love and support, bearing their burdens, championing their their voice. And the darkest periods of church history have occurred when someone has played out the church's mission for purposes other than Christ's sacrificial love. They have occurred because they fell for the same mistake that Peter did. did. They kicked Jesus out of the driver's seat. We'll talk more about justice and mission and evangelism and worship later on in the series, but now let us be grounded in the truth that Christ's mission, this great commission, flows out of worship. So now at last we come to the commissioning itself. Jesus Christ, having burst from the tomb, called his closest disciples together and gives them these amazing words. He says, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Man, that is a packed passage. Pregnant in this passage are statements about God's sovereignty, God's call to his people, the promise of eternal presence. We could use this passage to discuss the triune nature of God, the kingship of Christ, the proclamation of the gospel, baptism, justice, discipleship, obedience, and eschatology. It's all there in the form of this great commission, this great mission that God's put his people on, that God has used um, to give purpose, uh, that God has used to give identity to his ecclesia. I want to take a few minutes to point out some high points, but know 
we could have spent an entirety of this series just walking word for word through that remarkable statement. Now, we'll start from the beginning. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, heaven and earth is interesting language. What does that remind you of? You hear words heaven and earth? Like when you hear about like the person who created heaven and earth? We go all the way back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, etc., etc. The first passage of the Bible. So Jesus is saying, you remember when that creation itself was created? You remember hearing the tale of when God created everything? Authority over all of that has been now given to me. Later on. And man, I love this. The Apostle Paul speaks about Jesus in this way. Uh, turn with me to uh, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Starting in verse 15, Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God. He's talking about Jesus. The firstborn over all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of the cross. But that's not all. When we turn to the last two chapters of the book of Revelation and we hear where this whole ship of creation is headed, we read this in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and First earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne says, See, I am making all things new. So when Jesus gathers his disciples after bursting forth from the tomb on the resurrection and says that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, he is not simply talking about starting a religious organization 
or starting some spiritual movement or even a political agenda. He is talking about a revolution of creation and life itself. And now Jesus prefaces his instructions with the words, go therefore. There is a principle of biblical interpretation that says anytime you see a therefore, you need to ask, what is it there for? Well, the reason is that is because the words that follow are in light of the truth that Jesus is the king of the universe. He says, go therefore and make disciples of every nation. Now, right here, we got to emphasize what Jesus did not say. He did not say, go and convert people to Christianity. Some pockets of the church over the years have been very good at using one way or another to convert people to Christianity. Ways of individuals, one, um, ways of individuals have, have come through a, a process like this where a, a smooth-talking man with a microphone makes it sound like you better pray a prayer and you better confess Jesus as Lord and Savior And you feel good about it because you can pretty much go about your life the way that you want because you figure that you're good with the whole heaven and hell thing. Best to get that sewn up early, right? So you might even ask yourself one day, you might, somebody might even ask you one day, well, well, are you a Christian? And you say, yeah, I believe Jesus died for my sins. And you're able to articulate that you believe that the Bible is clear that we are justified by faith alone, not through works. And since I have faith in Jesus, therefore I'm good, right? Friends, you understand that, <coughs> sorry, that the danger of that whole mentality is that there is just enough truth in it to make it deadly. If you Google Billy Graham quotes, the first one that comes up says, being a Christian is more than just an instantaneous conversion. It is a daily process whereby you grow to be more and more like Christ. See what I did there? Jesus called people to follow him. And if you want to call followers of Jesus Christians, we can. We just need to take stock in the fact that in the Great Commission, the last words of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is calling his disciples to make disciples. Make, to make. That's the primary verb in the passage. The word make implies craft. It implies, it assumes that there is a molding of character that is to be done. And it's not that the disciples don't have a model for how they're supposed to go about doing this thing. They've spent three years learning from the master. They've heard him proclaim the good news. They've heard him preach the truth of the kingdom. They've learned from him. They've cried along with him. There was an emotional, intimate connection that happened when you followed Jesus. Just a short time before Jesus was commissioning his disciples, he was gathered together with them in the upper room where they had shared the Last Supper. And John, he he tells us that during this Last Supper, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, again, you hear that, in light of the truth that Jesus is the king of the universe, and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God, got up from the table, this king of the universe, this man who has authority over all things, gets up from the table, takes off his outer robe, ties a towel around himself, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Well, the disciples are in shock, but after Jesus, afterwards, Jesus says, so, if I, 
your Lord and teacher, if, if I, the one who has authority over all things, the, the one who is the king of the universe, if I have gotten down on my hands and knees and washed your filthy feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example so that you, might, that, so that you should do as I have done for you. You want to know what it looks like to go and make disciples of all nations. It's not going to be fancy pyrotechnics. It's not going to be smooth language. It's not going to be scare tactics. No, the disciple maker is one who will get down on his hands and knees and serve others sacrificially. From there, a posture of worship to God and love of others the good news can be proclaimed in a language that will translate to the ends of the earth, the language of sacrificial love. God has offered his creation new life. Jesus says, go, make disciples of every nation. What will that discipleship look like? Well, yes, first of all, it is going to look like what we would call conversion. Although those words carry some, that word carries some nasty connotation, connotation in our culture. Jesus says, go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, baptism is a public declaration of faith. Biblically, it is, it is synonymous with conversion or coming to faith. There is loads we could say about baptism and about how the church has viewed this rite of passage. I, I realize that me even calling it a rite of passage is controversial. Um, and we don't have time to get into that, but I will say, I think, more about that next week when we talk about the unity of the church. For now, it's safe to say that baptism is a symbol of the gospel. It marks entry into the gospelizing community and creates a bond of unity with all those in every place who are baptized into Christ Jesus. See, as we are submerged, we die with Christ. As we come up, we are resurrected with him to new life. See, it's important that we not neglect the community aspect of baptism. Remember, Jesus' words here are to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So as we fulfill the Great Commission and baptize others, we are welcoming others into the church, which is itself a Trinitarian community. One writer puts it this way. The church is the creation and covenantal companion of the God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternal communion. The Son fulfills the Father's needs, and the Father fulfills the Son's needs, and the Spirit fulfills the Son's needs, and the Spirit fulfills the Father's needs, and there's this eternal communion. The church belongs to the triune God. The Father calls the church into being by the Son and indwells it by the Holy Spirit who unites it to Christ. The church is the people of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the body and the bride of Christ. Outside of the Trinity, there is no church. I love this one principle. I heard a pastor say this one time. He said, I know that some of you think that the doctrine of the Trinity is, well, just calling it a doctrine sounds a little bit like something that I might find in a dusty old theology book. And it's kind of like, oh, I'm going to learn some theology about how the Trinity works. And that's, you know, it just kind of seems a little boring. And he says, folks, I apologize. If the doctrine of the Trinity was not explained to you in a way that made your soul come alive, you were done a disservice. 
The church is a Trinitarian community, one that exists in sacrificial service to one another. But married to that principle of new life and community, the principle of community initiation, being, baptized, uh, being symbolized in baptized, and baptism, is the other side of that discipleship coin. So if conversion and baptism is one side of the coin, the other side of the coin we might call discipleship proper. Jesus says, go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all I've commanded. So there is a journey of discipline implied here. There is education implied here. There is no finished project as you seek to make these disciples. There is instead welcoming others into a life of obedience to the one who holds all things together. So worship and prayer and music and study and fellowship and spiritual disciplines and confession and service and sacrifice and laughter and tears and meals and meals... The church makes disciples not by doing church programs. The church makes disciples by being the body of Christ. That is why house churches are so vital to our community. We discipline ourselves to carve out an evening a week to study the things of God with other disciples. And when we gather together, we come from a posture of worship because this all comes together. Even as some, even as some, even as some come with their doubts. And we invest in God's most precious commodity, each other. And you may be here thinking today, well, I don't know if I need a house church. Well, I don't know, but I know this. I know that there's a house church that needs you. So Jesus tells this great commission to a group of Jewish men who had barely traveled more than a few miles away from their place of their birth, that they're going to take the good news of God's kingdom to all the nations of the world That must have seemed an impossible thing at the time. Probably no less impossible than a guy being raised from the dead. You and I are here today because of what God did in them. He gave them a commission to spread the gospel, to build the church, and if that seemed impossible, it was. There was no way that they were going to do this of their own power. Jesus' final words to them, The last words of Matthew's gospel is this. Remember, remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, if you're anything like me, and you hear that, you hear Jesus saying, remember, I'm with you always. The first thing that I think of is Star Wars. You know, Luke Skywalker is... Got his protons, torpedoes? I forget now. Anyway, he, he just bombed the Death Star, and he's, the Death Star's blowing up, and he's flying away, and it's victorious, and hey, we just made this great defeat on the Empire. And here's Obi-Wan Kenobi with the Force magic. The Force will be with you, always. So yeah, that's the first thing I thought of. But what's the difference there? You know, in Star Wars, there's this, like, what, this abstract thing, this force, this um, is impersonal force that kind of is apparently created through, like, midi-chlorians or something, and we're not really sure what all that is, and, and it's not, like, a very personal thing. It's kind of like, yeah, the force will kind of be keeping an eye on you, and it may help you or may not help you along the way. 
What Jesus is saying here is, here, go do this mission. Go do this incredible, remarkable, just outrageously revolutionary, radical thing about what it means to be the identity of God's people. And when you go do that, when you go do something to the ends of the earth and you feel like, gosh, nobody is for me, and you feel like you failed, and you feel like you don't know what the next step is, remember, not some abstract God is, is, may or may not be around. I am by your side. Remember, I am there. I am with you, not sometimes, not when you feel spiritual, not when you feel like a Christian. I am with you always, to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the age, to the ends of eternity. I am with you always. That is something we as the church, that's our therefore. That's why we are the church. That's why we are New Hope Community Church. Because we believe that we are living into the victory and freedom of Jesus Christ. Friends, I'm just so glad, so happy to be a part of this church and that we get to do this together. That we get to listen to each other's stories. That we get to share and kind of be vulnerable with one another and say, this are my doubts, this is my worship, these are my joys, these are my kids, this is my family, this is what I think about God, this is what I'm angry about. We get to put all of that together and we get to be the church. And we get to be a light to this world that when people come in, they might see a community that truly is real with each other, that truly loves one another. And they might say, "Ah, I just want a taste of that. And when they say that, when they say, I want a taste of that, our response is, you just got to meet our Savior. You just got to meet our God. He has such. Let me pray. Father, this mission you have called us to and into is impossible through our own power and our own cunning. If it was left to our own devices and left to our own ideas of what mission is, we would fail. But Father, we're trusting in here that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to you. We're trusting that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. Not in some abstract way, but rather in a personal relationship. The way that an intimate friend is with us even more so. Father, we just pray that Um, each of us would examine what this Great Commission means to us personally, what it means to our families, what it means to our work, what it means to the things that we put our hands to throughout the week. What does it mean for us to be doing the Great Commission tomorrow morning at work? What does it mean to be doing the Great Commission this week at at the scout meeting or on the soccer field? What does it mean to be doing the Great Commission in the places that you have placed us? And Father, I just ask that you would uh, whisper maybe a word of risk uh, in us this morning and say, maybe there's something, maybe there's another step. Maybe there's something you've been hesitant about taking, another step that you've been hesitant to taking. God says, no, I'm with you. Father, you tell us always that you're with us. Help us to, uh, to make those bold those bold moves in your courage, in your strength, not in ours. 
We do all this and we ask all of this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.